Welcome to the Bike Portland podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Maas. I should say welcome back to the podcast since I took a few weeks off after our last episode. So I'm really happy to be back at the mic and I cannot wait to share this interview with Oregon State Representative Con Pham. Rep Pham is a former community organizer who's worked with uh, local nonprofits, uh, Opal Environmental Justice Oregon and the Asian Pacific American Network of Oregon, which some of you may know as Apano. Uh, most recently, she was a founding member of the coalition that created the Portland Clean Energy Fund, uh, and she continued that momentum by playing a major role in passing three clean energy bills uh, last year in her first session down at the legislature. You might recall hearing from Rep. Fam in a previous episode when I caught up with her at a Youth versus ODOT rally uh, in September of last year. Back then, she was a rookie legislator and just emerging as a transportation reform leader. But since then, she's really established herself in that role. Uh, not only has she spoken up several times uh, with testimony on several big projects, and most most notably, uh, she's grabbed a seat just recently on the powerful uh, joint Committee on Transportation down in Salem. It's also worth noting she's recently hired former policy manager from the Street Trust, Andre Lightsey Walker, to be her transportation advisor. Rep Fam and I talked about all that stuff and a whole lot more in this interview. Uh, if you're curious about how a progressive Democrat from Portland will impact transportation policy in a highly partisan legislature, uh, what her vision is for a post-ODOT 82nd Avenue, or if you want structural reform of ODOT and the Oregon Transportation Commission, I think you're going to love this episode. Here's our conversation. Rep. Pam, thanks for coming in and talking with me today, especially with the uh, session about to start tomorrow. Thank you. I'm excited as well. Good. And so any thoughts as you embark on your second session uh, as, as a legislator? Um, I am just approaching this a short session with um, beginner's mind and a lot of excitement. I know five weeks is a relatively short amount of time, but I we've got a solid plan and my team is super excited about really advancing um, some really important priorities this, this session. Cool. I, I can't wait to talk about some of those. But before we get into that, um, there's a question I love to ask all my guests, which is, can you share something about your relationship to transportation? You know, just how you've gotten around uh, most of your life. Sure. I mean, transportation has always been something I thought about a lot. I was actually born and raised in the suburbs. Um, and as a, as, a, as a daughter of immigrants and refugees who came from a lot of trauma, they were actually really worried about a lot of dangers. And so, you know, it was really hard. It was a constant source of of conflict because we just, you know, I couldn't get to the places I needed to go. And, and, um, and so I've always really just thought about how transportation is such a gateway for people to be able to access, whether it's schools or, or any jobs or opportunities, even the kind of community and social things that are necessary to be, to live a fulfilling life. So that's always been really clear to me. And my first job out of college was actually as an organizer and training with the Labor Community Strategy Center in Los Angeles, which has the first, I think, the first bus riders union. And that was just a really formative experience riding on the buses of South Central Los Angeles, South LA, just really uh, mostly just organizing with black and brown bus riders, transit dependent bus riders in one of the most sprawling cities in the country and talking to them about the issues they face, the challenges getting to school or work. And so I fell in love with bus organizing. I love the space of buses where one of the few spaces today where we can actually come together, people of different ethnicities, um, people of different races and sometimes class backgrounds and and actually talk to each other, you know, forced to be in a, in a shared space together. And, and I think that has always just really shaped how I see the world. Um, also seeing the way that they took on the Metropolitan Transportation Authority and sued them for civil rights violations based on the ways that they were raising bus fares to fund um, some of their subway and light rail expansions. Um, also gave me new insights into the ways in which even things that are that seem really positive can actually disproportionately hurt hurt BIPOC and low-income communities. 
Interesting. So that, that makes a lot of sense that you, when you came to the Portland area, you got involved with Obel Environmental Justice Oregon and, and Apano, and you carried some of that into your, into your work. And it, it strikes me too, when you, the way you described um, the space of a bus is sort of how I, I think a lot about like public plazas. It's sort of a mobile version of a, of a public plaza. So yeah, I love that. That's really interesting. And I, I grew up too, most of my formative years, a few cities, I think, I guess to the north of Irvine and Cyprus. So yes, come from also like a really suburban uh, environment, which has inspired a lot of uh, the way I see transportation in Portland and activism in general. So I can definitely relate to that. Um, so yeah, you were a, a lot of people are sort of think of you maybe as being new to the scene here as a politician uh, in Oregon, but you've really been, like you said, organizing around uh, economic justice, social justice, transportation justice, these climate change issues for uh, like two decades now or so uh, going on. And I wonder, as you are making this transition into being an elected official, like what pieces of that activism sort of approach can you use to be a good politician? And then I'm going to ask like, which, which ones do you think you have to kind of give up in order to be effective as a politician? <laughs> so first off, like what, what pieces of being an organizer, community organizer and activist can you, can you use and to be an effective uh, elected official? I mean, I feel like I use all the skills of organizing as an elected official. I, I think I came into office knowing, knowing I wanted to be a different kind of legislator that was really bringing communities and coordinating with communities. I, I saw myself as still part of the movement, just maybe doing now the inside part of an inside outside strategy where it was before I was more on the outside and frankly didn't have a lot of insiders to connect with. And so um, I think the ability to build relationships with people, to be able to think about who are your targets, who's the real decision maker, who do they listen to, who do they, you know, who are they, what are they moved by, what are their values, and how do I speak to those values so that we can meet them where they're at and also move them to where we want to go. So I, I think those, um, those kinds of skills um, has been, and that power mapping and all those skills have, have really been um, incredibly helpful for me as a, as a legislator. And yeah, I think just a sense of humility as well, knowing that we, we are all just operating different roles and to make change. And I think it's really important that I recognize all the time that I'm just in many ways, um, a conduit to be able to communicate. What is the community saying? What are some of the, the needs that communities are saying? What are the solutions that we're coming up with? And if I can play my role more effectively, it may be somebody else who, Taps. I mean, I tap out, and somebody else, you know, takes this place. But we're just really always trying to develop leaders. I guess that's the other thing is really putting an eye towards. I'm always thinking about how do we develop new leaders and build more pipelines so that we have many other seats that are opening up in 2022, for example. And those are real opportunities. I never imagined myself in this position. Never. It was it just personality-wise, it didn't seem like the right thing, but. Um, but now that I'm here, I see so many opportunities about what is possible when you have um, someone who is oriented towards community, does come with a community organizing experience. And, and I do want to encourage um, our movements to be looking out for those opportunities so we can seize those moments and really um, push for the transformative changes that we need in this moment. Yeah, I hear you. you you've said um, recently that you feel like you're part of when you got when you were elected, you're a part of like a, pr a progressive majority, a new progressive majority um, in Oregon. And I, I've also heard you say you've been inspired by the squad, the likes of, um, you know, House of uh, U.S. Representatives Ilhan Omar uh, and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. But as I'm sure you know, um, you know, capital in D.C. is a lot different than the, the capital down in Salem. So I just wonder, um, you know, how you would adjust that style, because I'm really and you were just talking about sort of what how you how you balance sort of being an activist and being an elected official. And I'm really interested in like those differences and how to be effective in both. And oftentimes activism can be a lot uh, sort of more like strident views and maybe less likely to, to compromise because you have to appeal to a base of your your donors and that sort of stuff. And it can be some similarities in politics, but I think there's also some interesting differences. So I wonder, how do you see sort of like taking on like a, a strong progressive voice in a state like Oregon, where we have a super diverse sort of urban rural thing going on. And, and I'm sure you've already found even with one session under your belt, you have to sort of make compromise. So how do you do that, that sort of squad stuff, but like in an Oregon context? Yeah, I think that's a fascinating question that I'm still constantly learning and refining. And I think one of the things that I've learned is that it's not so simplistic as radical versus 
you know, more moderate because I think a lot of voices feel like they have been unheard of, like, for example, rural voices, um, I think feel like they are not heard as well. And when I was the director at the Oregon Just Transition Alliance, we saw that when we went on our statewide listening tour for an Oregon Green New Deal, we heard the, some of the same challenges in rural communities as some of our low income and BIPOC communities in urban areas in terms of accessing transportation or you know, just accessing the benefits of the green economy and, and, and often the, uh, you know, corporations want to pit us against each other and say, oh, you know, it's those urban folks that don't understand your issues. And so for me, it's been also about trying to how to like break out of the false binaries and choices around that um, certain more powerful money interests want to keep us divided. And so I guess I would say it's been about making sure I, I guess I'm trying to find the the shared, um, what are the shared values? And I don't feel like I've actually tried to, I don't think I have had to compromise my vision. I think it's what is important is to make sure that I reach out to constituencies that I, I wasn't able to work with when I was just, you know, working in Portland and um, being able to find, you know, with rural legislators, where can we find that common, the commonalities um, where, where we both can maybe feel like we don't have our communities which includes some of the one in three Oregonians who don't have access to a car and don't have access to public transit. How do we find and push for our shared values to make sure we have a transportation system that works for all Oregonians? So it sounds like you're, in general, you have some hope and, and optimism that this sort of traditionally very divisive legislature in Salem um, that you can work past that. I mean, I'm, I'm just, I'm curious, anybody working down there, how much that weighs on your mind that we've had walkouts and we've had such strident partisanship as you come in there with this, I think is a really productive vision of like appealing to a lot of people. Is that way on your mind that there are so many people in those chambers that are you know, just willing to walk out if they don't agree with you? And, and, you know, how can you make progress in that environment? You know, I am, I, I wouldn't be in this job if I didn't have hope and, and just a sense of optimism, because as an organizer, I've had to talk with people, I mean, even in my own community, the Vietnamese community, there's very many, very conservative people. And I just feel like I have a lot of experience in, 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 have, in just trying to learn people about people's lives and genuinely come with that sense of curiosity to understand their experiences. Um, I can't say, I think it's important to hold both truths, right? Like, yeah, there's some really challenging hyper-partisanship and history there that I wasn't even a part of. And we, I think we have to be clear-eyed about the, the real challenges that our democracy is facing, both not just in our state, but also just nationally that's impacting uh, conditions here. But I also know that our state has a long history of being able to to do things when the country is in a deadlock. And so I'm, I am still really hopeful and optimistic about what we can achieve. Yeah. I, I'm, and I wanted to um, switch gears here a little bit to uh, something a little more, literally more close to home. So you live um, like two blocks. You, I've heard you say you live like a couple blocks from 82nd Avenue, uh, which is for folks who don't know, is a really dangerous sort of classic orphan highway. The state has been in control of it all this time. It used to be the interstate and then they built a big, or used to be a highway and they, they built the big interstate next to it and have neglected it for, for many decades. And it has a terrible safety record and all these things. So I wonder, you know, was it, was it surreal for you to go from living there, organizing on those streets, talking to people's experience, trying to get the attention of lawmakers to within what seemed like a short time in some ways, sort of being on the sidelines and in the on the teams and negotiating this like, you know, $185 million package that included the city and ODOT and the state legislature was what was that experience like for you? Uh, I I definitely was humbled by the opportunity. I will say there was no table or actual room. So I, it was <laughs> yeah, right, not okay. like there was like, a, I imagine that's how things happen. Uh, it wasn't like a, a standard process that you probably would be more used to. It just seemed to be like, it was this amazing urgency that came up to hasten this. What happened with folks was like a jurisdictional transfer. So eventually uh, Rep. Fam was a part of a process to help get that over the finish line, something advocates have been working for. So uh, it just recently happened where the state said, OK, City of Portland, we'll get you this. We'll give you the money to sort of make this transfer happen. So, yeah, sorry, you were saying what was it like being there? Well, I think it's important to remember that ODOT first offered three million dollars. Um, yeah, in, in this, uh, that was their first offer for what they could contribute to jurisdictional transfer. And wow. it was only because, so I actually would say I've stayed kind of in my role. I don't think I was in the inside, but I, uh, 
we I worked with community groups. I mean, community groups that you know we just we were still mourning the two pedestrian deaths within the space of two weeks of each other, and we knew that was not enough. And so it was really community pushing and making sure that it was clear that that is not sufficient to the the deadly conditions that our children, our, our students, our families are facing and our businesses too. And so we pushed and pushed and we we're able to get 185 million within the space of a couple of weeks. Um, so I have to say, I was more just pushing and really, you know, testifying at OTC and, and, and meeting with community and lifting it up through um, kind of a rallies, virtual rallies and things. But I, yeah, I think it just really shows that community engagement is key. We need to be leaning in and making sure that our governments are meeting the moment. And that's really how it happened. I actually felt like it just kind of reaffirmed how important it is to have people with uh, lived experiences and, and deep ties to community to be to be in the legislature. Yeah, and I and I can appreciate that you have uh, that you haven't necessarily spent all the time on eighty second, given the other things on your plate. But if you close your eyes and envision sort of a future for the street, um, can you see a future where you know those those lanes that pre people can currently drive on are reallocated to a bus, or could you see potentially like a bike lane on eighty second in the future? Like, what does that look like to you? Absolutely, I can see. I mean, it really depends on what the community wants to see, but. I would love to see um, a bus, a dedicated bus lane and, uh, you know, more opportunities, not just for a bike lane, but really a separate vehicle bike lane that feels safe to, to bike on and, and really spacious sidewalks, places where people can actually pause. A lot of the businesses there are seen as just, you know, places to just whiz by at 35, 40 miles an hour, but there are some really vibrant, small family-owned businesses along the corridor who would love people to actually walk by, stop in, and really support local businesses. So I'm, I guess I envision a place where people are not just speeding by, because we have the 205 freeway right next door. People can, if they need to speed, they can go on that freeway. 82nd Avenue can be a place where people connect, where they meet, where they shop, where they you know, it's already a place where people take their kids to school. So how can we make it a safe place where people feel safe, to, where parents like me, like me, I, my daughter actually goes to school at Bridger, which is just um, on 79th, right, right close to 82nd. And we have to cross 82nd to get there. And, and it, I would never in a million years let her, I used to walk to school, I would never in a million years let her cross that street by herself. Um, not until she's much, much older. And maybe, I don't know when I would feel safe because the, the cars there are just going way too fast. I've seen so I've seen countless accidents and now I've learned to brace ourselves for news of the next fatality or injury on 82nd. So, um, yeah, my vision is a slower, more vibrant street where the businesses are supported, where parents and families are supported and, and people can, can bike and walk and, and, and take the bus and drive um, if necessary, but it's it's just one of the many modes of transportation rather than the single mode that takes over everything. And I wonder if you've thought or, or have any concern around maybe like that tension, because it ultimately comes down to the fact that the vast majority of people on 82nd now drive, drive a car on it. And so no matter how people want to talk about this process or no matter how much optimism you might have, given folks like you, like how you just described and other people, and I think basically the city of Portland's values and vision for it, the conversation is going to come to a point of it's not going to be as easy or it's not going to be, um, you know, as quick or efficient to drive on 82nd. Do you have any thoughts about what to do when people really get concerned about that? I, I, I hope that it doesn't turn into a flashpoint, but I can, I've been around these projects and I know that I can see that happening. And I think I can see people bringing up, well, you know, sorry, but you know, these other options aren't available to my family yet. And this, this car is the only way I can get around. And if you take away 82nd Avenue, X, Y, Z can happen. So any thoughts about like how you would respond to like a constituent that calls you and says, you know, Hey, Hey con, you know, this, what, what's going to happen here? They're taking away my street. What would you, how would you respond to someone like that? Well, I think it's the responsibility of the state of our government to be able to make sure that this transition that we're going to make, which is challenging, but we have to make it if we want to survive, that it's done in an equitable way. So we like the Portland Clean Energy Fund is a model for me of the approach that we need to take because we can take, you know, with a small one percent 
surcharge on billion dollar corporations. We can build this Portland Clean Energy Fund, which has over 60, which generates over $60 million a year and use that to fund, you know, can we buy electric bikes for every low income household in Portland? Can we buy a little covered electrical vehicle? Can we buy, um, you know, what can we do? I mean, there's so there's so much creativity. I mean, even as I was talking with some parents about because right now we're facing a school bus driver shortage. And, you know, what are ways that we can do kind of bike mobile bike mobiles where people parents can help volunteer? And and I think the key thing is that we need to be using our resources in a way that actually supports families and recognizes that they that currently we don't have options. So we need to be able to create those options and make it easier for people, because if the transition is is punishing the people who don't have the money or the access to resources um, to be able to bike or, or take other transportation, then that's that's an unjust transition. And we need to make sure, I, I read somewhere, that's a slogan I keep going back to, that transition is inevitable. Like we are seeing already with all the climate disasters we're facing, all the pandemics. And I mean, we are in the midst of a tremendous transition right now. And the question is whether the transition is gonna be just or not. And as government, we need to make sure that we're using all of our resources and organizing those resources to ensure it's a just transition. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up the Portland Clean Energy Fund. And for folks who don't know, it passed in 2018 local measure to raise, you can correct me, 50 or $60 million a year for for grants and other things that the community could then invest for clean energy related projects and sort of climate change resiliency, all sorts of great things. Folks can look it up. But I think um, from my perspective, what was important about that was that the coalition of people around it and organizations look different than other major sort of political efforts uh, in, in Portland. Uh, the people of color, every, everybody, all different types of coalitions that didn't usually come together, especially around clean energy, let's say, were able to sort of have this u united front. Um, uh, and and I was I noted that when it passed, one of the the quotes that you said that really stuck with me was you said, "quote Oregon has a long history of white supremacy, and you can see it even in our environmental movement, where middle and upper class homeowners tend to dominate, uh, and they benefit most from programs like this." So I wonder if you see the same situation in like the transportation movement, because of course, seeing the clean energy fund happen. And me being someone who's really sort of transportation focused, I'm like, okay, is that going to be a blueprint for something on the transportation side? So I wonder if you see that's those same sort of starting blocks that Clean Energy Fund had in terms of the history of that movement building. Do you see that being a problem in the transportation movement and then possibly as a blueprint to get, get over that? Yes, to both answers. I absolutely see some of the same dynamics. Um, in the transportation justice or transportation equity circles. Sometimes I'm like, wow, it's only white men in this room. But I also see so much opportunity and there are groups like they're, they're leaning in and the Oregon Just Transition Alliance is also looking and about what, what what's the landscape look like statewide and, and people have raised um, some of the, the concerns around the highway trust fund or how do we make sure that uh, we have intercity intercity tra public transit and making sure that rural Oregonians have access. So I absolutely see an opportunity. Um, so we took the Portland Clean Energy Fund model and then kind of used some of the same principles of frontline leadership allied with more privileged capacity organizations who, who were working in alliance, but really clearly led by the frontline values. We took that model and helped build the Oregon Clean Energy Opportunity Campaign, um, which in 2021 won uh, three bills for energy affordability, healthy homes, and 100% clean energy for all. And so that's these are huge leaps, and we did it centering uh, frontline communities. And so I, I think they're you know, looking for their next issue. And I think transportation is is one of the, the really important issues that have been lifted. So I'm hopeful that we can continue to use that same model, which is a winning model. I mean, it's it's been, um, I think it's a really powerful coalition. And I think it, I, I absolutely hope to see it also being used to, to win real transportation justice demands. Great. And, and I, I remember you you were saying something, something I read about uh, about the, the Clean Energy Fund work and saying that one and also the, the energy bills that you passed last session, that one of the ways that you thought that or one of the ways you approached it that you thought made them more effective was that you sort of avoided jargon, uh, specifically kind of what we were talking about before, about maybe appealing to folks down in Salem that wouldn't typically be your allies or maybe even see you and, and your allies as threats to them. So you avoided jargon like, well, I won't say it's jargon, but you avoided terms like like climate change and instead you sort of focused on disaster resilience, right, to make, make a more broad tent. Do you, 
have you ever sort of thought of like transportation related terms or like you're saying like use the same stuff like maybe let's say on on 82nd if that comes up and you're in those conversations and if people are talking about i don't know uh closing a lane for cars or a road diet maybe there's a different way to say it that's kind of you're saying that's a good approach huh yeah, I don't think that everybody is moved by the climate frame, but a lot of people in outside of the Portland metro region know what it's like to live next to an orphan highway. That sometimes that's the only main street in town is a highway that ODOT just hasn't historically been able to to manage or to to design in a way that could meet the the community's needs. And so I think that, you know, everyone can relate to what it feels like as a mother to have to to walk your kid across the street where literally two people have died in the last month or um, having to, if you're, if you are in a, in a community that doesn't have access to public transit, or maybe they go once a day or something, that's, that's a really paralyzing feeling to not be able to get to where you need to go. Um, if you, if you, if your car breaks down and you have, you can't, you have, can't afford to repair it. And there's a million reasons why people can't drive. And we need to invest in a transportation system that still gives people opportunities to get to where they need to go. Yes, I, I totally agree with that for sure. Um, so I want to switch gears a little bit to the um, to the short session. Uh, I saw I saw your some of your legislative priorities. I didn't see any transportation related stuff in there, but you were recently um, uh, you were recently appointed to the Joint Transportation Committee, and I'm just curious how how did that come about? Is that something you lobbied uh, your the party leaders for, or how did that come out to get a seat on that on that committee? Yeah, I definitely lobbied and asked for a seat on that committee. And I think that they saw a real value to having someone with my perspective and experiences as a mother who also has a child who goes to school off an orphan highway, someone who uh, is connected as an organizer to, to many of the communities who are most impacted and, and don't necessarily haven't necessarily seen um, a voice as much in some of the transportation decisions. So I was really heartened to see that they valued my perspective and um, wanted to see it on the committee. Do, do you think there are any transportation issues that if that advocates should be looking at at this in the short session to keep an eye on? Yeah, I think there are actually. I um, I'm waiting to be briefed soon, but we the, the the agenda for the first meeting has is up, and I think there there might be something around Lyft. And uh, my transportation policy fellow, who just came on, um, has been doing a little research and raised some flags about it. But I don't actually know what he has to say. So I just encourage people to look at the agenda that's posted on our um, OLIS website. Just look up olis.oregonlegislature.gov and and check out the Joint Committee on Transportation because they are regularly posting agendas. And um, I think I would love to, to see what communities' perspectives are and some of the bills that will be getting a public hearing. So yeah, that's definitely one worth flagging. Another one that I don't know if the bill has, has come out yet, but the city of Portland's tried for several years to um, uh, make progress on their automated street camera enforcement systems. So, you know, traffic signal cameras, red light cameras, stuff like that. Um, they're going to try again. It's it's in their legislative agenda. Essentially what the bill does is right now there's a bottleneck because a sworn police officer has to look at every photograph and make the decision about the citation. So as you probably know, there's sort of a movement to like remove police from places where you don't necessarily need a police officer to be, uh, especially when there's a bottleneck on a on a on something that a lot of people agree and think is effective, like automated uh, traffic cameras. So I wonder if that bill comes to your desk or comes to the committee, would you support that bill that would essentially remove that police officer and make it a civilian position within the Department of Transportation instead? I definitely support making sure that we're we're not trying to ask police to do things that they're not, you know, trained or not. Or I guess that is not really their. Um, the primary focus that we are asking from police, whether it's mental health, dealing with mental health crises or helping unhoused people find um, shelter um, and checking red light tickets does not seem to be a high priority that we should be asking the police to do. So my first inclination would be supportive of it. But I, again, I always look to community organizations and members who might have direct experience to educate me about, about the impacts of, of this proposed policy. And, and one potential thing that I hope becomes a legislative issue uh, soon here is something you've mentioned before and have mentioned in other contexts, which is um, changing how the formula funding comes down through the federal government. So that like the bulk of ODOT's funding comes from what's called the Highway Trust Fund, which folks don't know, it's sort of 
uh, statutorily obligated to go toward the highway right of way. You can basically hear that as being it must be spent on on freeways and other sort of driving centric sort of status quo projects. But you, Rep. Fam, uh, Rep. Fam, have made a point of saying that it might be time to open up that highway trust fund fund law and maybe consider. Uh, you being able to use that that money, which is essentially gas tax revenue for other things. And I'm just curious, you know, like when does that campaign start and where can people sign up or <laughs> what's the latest on that? And, and can you explain kind of like your your position on that, why you think it's important? Well, you know, I, I feel like I, my role as a legislator is to make sure that our agencies and our policies and in this case, even our constitution are really able to meet the current crises and the realities of 2022. And so if that means that we need to refer to the ballot, um, an initiative to let voters decide, you know, this was a, a constitutional amendment that was developed, I think in the 30s or 40s, I mean, decades ago before we understood the impacts of greenhouse gas emissions and how devastating it would be on, on the whole state. Uh, whether it's wildfires or ice storms or the deadly heat waves. And we, I think, understand now that we need to take action on climate at an urgent pace. And and we need to look at all of our institutions um, to make sure that we're, we're, you know, pivoting to make sure that we are getting rid of any kind of restrictions that are really inhibiting our ability to respond to, to the urgent needs to meet this moment. Yeah, and I mean, just it's kind of a big topic among a lot of activists and, and advocates right now in the transportation space, which is thinking more broadly about reforming ODOT, reforming ODOT's bosses, the Oregon Transportation Commission, or or maybe having the governor's office or legislators take a more active role in changing and it really intentionally changing how some of these status quo policies uh, have been going on. So. Uh, Back in September, when I talked to you at the Youth vs. ODOT rally, I think in your speech you said, um, you know, ODOT has to play a critical role in this transition, which you, know, you were sort of talking about what, what you were just describing, which is sort of a new approach to, to transportation that isn't so focused on driving. And you know, I think if you're if I'm an ODOT person, I could list off a long list of things that we're doing great to show that we're changing. Right, climate office, and you know, funding more for non-highway projects than ever, and a great, you know, the safe routes to school program. All these things they can list, right? But it seems like they they have more urgency and more funding for for sort of the bad things than the urgency and funding they have for the good things. So I'm just curious, from your mind, from where you sit now, do you think ODOT is headed in the right direction generally, or where do you see ODOT on that spectrum of really becoming the kind of agency you think uh, we need in Oregon? Well, I think we have to recognize that ODOT started out as the Department of Highways, as a, and and that was their mandate. And in many ways, their structure really reflects their original mandate. And so, what is hard for them even is to shift the entire their entire mission. They can do things along the sides, and I think they have really made real changes to start a climate office and do all these things on the side. But their fundamental mission, which is to maintain and build the the freeway system. Um, still remains at the core of their mission. And so I think, I don't think it's their sole responsibility. I think it's also the responsibility of the governor and of us as state legislators to make sure that we are doing our job to make sure that they can, they, they can see their mission differently. Um, they can transform some of their, their strategies. Um, because it's, you know, my dad actually used to work for the California Department of Transportation, and and I just had a, an insight from from afar about how hard it is to shift these huge bureaucracies. And so, it really does have to come from the elected officials who are who are accountable to the people to make sure that we're carrying out the, the our agencies are actually carrying out the the needs of communities. And and we're no longer ODA is no longer about just moving vehicles from point point A to point B as quickly as possible. It's it's really about meeting all these other needs that were never envisioned when they first formed. And unfortunately, even if I do think they are making changes, I think all of our systems, not just our transportation system, our housing system, our energy system, all of it is just, you know, we're, we're just not equipped. It's, it's from the 20th century or even the 19th century. And we're having to really transform all of these systems because the changes are coming so fast. I think everybody's feeling like this. What is going to come in 2022? We're just we are just prepared for just so many crises and transformation that are just showing us that the old ways of doing things aren't working anymore. And so we together have to build new ways of working together that will really work for our communities or else we're going to, to just keep suffering in, in our rigid structures. So um, that's, that's, I feel like, our responsibility. 
Yeah, and I, I think a I think a strong majority of Oregonians would agree with most of what you said, especially even if you got it specific to like ODOT and the job that they're doing. But eventually, something has to be done, and ODOT will often use that excuse too. Like if they're pressed on, hey, you got you need to do more, you need to do more, they'll say, hey, we're just carrying, we're just doing what the legislators told us to do. Why don't you go talk to them? So here we are talking to one of them. I'm just curious. I mean, at some point. Uh, you know, legislators and like the governor's office and the OTC, right? There's that sort of triumvirate there. At some point, do, do you think that there needs to be like a, a heavier handed approach to really intentionally make these reforms? Because the way it's going now is the OTC rubber stamps everything ODOT does. They're not independent at all like they should be. They're all good buddies. They're all on the same team. Uh, and I haven't seen a lot of engagement from the governor's office. Um, she recently had an engagement on one specific project, but overall, she hasn't shown any willingness to uh, appoint different OTC members or add new members like the youth activists have asked for a youth uh, commission member and they, ha they haven't done that yet. So I wonder if you think, you know, Governor Kate Brown is on the way out and, you know, one of your uh, allies, I think you would say a friend, uh, former House Speaker Tina Kotek is one of the front runners to be governor. So let's say she won. Would, you know, would you be someone who would really sort of like take that on or think that it's worth to spend political capital to be more intentional, you know, get on the OTC agenda and say, hey, this is what we're hearing from the community. Uh, it's time to do business differently. This is how we're going to restructure this. And this. I mean, do you think that's something that advocates are smart to be asking for? And do, is that how you see something that's needed in the next step in this reform you know, journey that we're on? I absolutely think it would be a smart thing for advocates to really lean into. And I am leaning into it regardless, but to collaborate together. I do think that, you know, a five member appointed unelected board, that's all, you know, volunteers, it's may not be fully equipped. I think we do need more voices on the commission to ensure that we're, you know, really fully thinking about all the different needs and, and all the impacts on communities as they're currently trying making decisions about how to spend billions of dollars in in transportation funding. And and we just need more voices, more accountability. And I definitely absolutely am having conversations with my fellow colleagues in the legislature about how we can lean into into the current transportation systems to make them more effective. And, and one one big issue where the OTC is in lockstep with ODOT is in their really strong support of the I-5 Rose Quarter uh, project. And I, when I asked you about it in September, you said you hadn't delved too deeply into it, but I just wonder, has that changed? Have you taken a closer look at it? And do you have any thoughts to share about that project in terms of your position on it, where it stands now? Yeah, I mean, I still wouldn't say I'm an expert, but I think I, some of the same questions that I'm applying to the I the, the interstate bridge replacement project are about, you know, what are the the real needs? What's the the purpose of of any kind of project that we do? What is the need that we're trying or the problem that we're trying to solve? And how can we ensure that we're right sizing whatever project that it doesn't become kind of overbuilt and then come at a huge opportunity cost to other transportation needs in our state, like the orphan highways and the jurisdictional transfer. 82nd Avenue is just one of countless orphan highways. There's another one, Powell Boulevard, which also just recently suffered two pedestrian fatalities. I mean, this is just a, a tragic and ongoing story in our state. And I'm concerned if these projects um, take really uh, scarce money away from, from being able to invest in public transit or orphan highways or local local needs um, that can, can serve and really have concrete benefits for the, or, the one in three Oregonians who, who don't have access right now. Do you think it's time to take like a stronger stance on projects that involve expanding freeways? Absolutely. And then I forgot to mention, of course, expanding the lanes is, as, as transportation engineers have shown over decades, it will just induce demand and uh, it hasn't been shown to reduce congestion because as people find, you know, it's faster and easier to go, it just generates more demand. And I think in the climate crisis, in this 2022, in this climate moment, we cannot be building, expanding fossil fuel infrastructure. Oh, that's interesting you said that because I know you have a lot of experience like uh, with energy related activism and like I've heard you say things about like Zenith oil terminal in Portland and and not expanding fossil fuel infrastructure. But I don't think I've heard like an elected official 
do the jump and and say that freeways we should also include freeways in that fossil fuel infrastructure definition and and the definition matters right because that's how it's adopted at least locally here in portland is that we won't support fossil fuel infrastructure but it's meant to be you know oil trains and, and processing centers and things like that but i mean do you think it's time to call freeways fossil fuel infrastructure and get a little more strong with the language as as a leader so that you can really sort of put odot on notice that that's not going to happen anymore yeah, I I see it as I see it as part of we're going to if we make these investments, these are 100 year investments and we don't want to be locking in this old, you know, 18th, 18, I mean, really, it's really 19th century infrastructure um, at a time when we need to be radically rethinking our streets because we need to also build more resilience as a community. And we're going to be doing that not by. We have to we have to be thinking about what's going to make us most resilient and kind of pouring in billions of dollars, leaving us in debt so that we can't afford other, you know, have the flexibility and nimbleness to be able to invest in other places is not going to help us address the, the coming shocks and crises that we know are coming. Yeah, and you're gonna you're gonna have a lot of time to talk about this because you know there's the I five bridge replacement project, which they call it, just a bit north of the Rose Quarter. That's certainly gonna be at the Joint Transportation Committee, I'm sure, eventually. Um, so, I mean, just to kind of like one last thing on that, you know, I know you're gonna have to take a more statewide view of these things, probably than a lot of your constituents in in your district want you to take. So, one of the you know the powerful arguments around expanding these freeways comes from, let's say, like. Eastern Oregon uh, weed farmers, you know, that, that come down to Salem and say, hey, we really need wider freeways in Portland because we've got to get our wheat, you know, to the to the to the market, to the ports and stuff like that. So, you know, what would you say to an Eastern Oregon wheat farmer that's saying, hey, I can't have any backups there. I got to get my wheat and on that freeway. And I heard that you were saying bad things about freeways. So, you know, what's going on, Rep, Rep Fam? You know, uh, why don't you support this freeway? What would you tell them? Well, I would actually talk about how I am precisely thinking about our needs statewide and which is why I'm raising questions. I would absolutely support us taking action on the bridge replacement if there are specific needs around seismic safety um, or, and I would like to see the data on the impact of traffic congestion on the actual export prices, which I've yet to see. And I've actually seen more conflicting data about the minimal as, uh, impact that uh, congestion has on the actual price of, of any good at the end of its you know, journey. Um, I am really concerned about if, in Eastern Oregon, if they have real needs to, for example, for their communities to have in, intercity transit between communities that need to access healthcare. Um, and often have to go to the next town over or the next county even to access particular kinds of healthcare or schools or jobs. Um, those those counties also need transportation investments. And when we take our scarce dollars um, and and pour it all into a five billion dollar project, that puts this one interstate bridge project at the top of the line to to be paid back. You know the bondholders. To pay back the bondholders and means that any other transportation needs that we may have basically don't get funded and won't get funded until we pay off that five billion dollars which we don't yet have a plan for how we're going a full plan for how we're going to pay for it um so i guess i would just take a i'm actually very much taking a statewide look when i when i evaluate these projects and wanting to make sure that area regions are, are equitably invested in and not we're not pouring it all into this one project, which arguably is going to primarily in, in um, or one of the main beneficiaries is going to be commuters who live on the Washington side who want to commute to to or to, to Portland. Yeah, for sure. That's that's been one of my real concerns with that is that there's so much focus on bridge project, quote unquote, and it's really a five mile project area that includes lots of wider freeways, new interchanges that are going to go through communities that have already been hurt by the freeway. So uh, that's that's something that I think may become a bigger issue too down the line is sort of like how how they're framing and wanting to talk about the project versus what the project um, really is. So I well, actually, to well, I'll just add to that too because mm -hmm. you know I did look at or or I'm still perusing ODOT's bridge inventory project, but we have 700 something bridges across the state and many of them actually do need some seismic retrofits. And, you know, with the recent collapse of the Pittsburgh bridge, I think it's really putting a spotlight on 
on the poor condition of some of our bridges. And again, it's opportunity costs. Like, our, what are we going to spend our dollars on? And if, and I remember reading, um, I can actually quote the, the um, in their Seismic Plus program cost summary, it looks like we could actually retrofit 718 bridges across the state using the total seismic to the total seismic plus standard to it would cost five billion dollars as well so it's almost the exact same price as a as a bridge replacement project um and and i think when we approach disaster resilience we really need to use a systems approach not just fortifying a single stretch of freeway but and we need to also we need to both fortify the single stretch which is super important and we need to be looking and taking a systems approach at the same time yeah, well, it's interesting you mentioned that report on bridge condition because I, I know that there are some people at, at Washington DOT and Oregon DOT that are going to be happy to show that report and say and talk about the really bad condition of the, the Columbia River Crossing Bridge, the interstate bridge, and say, hey, this is why we need this project. The only thing is the problem I see with the project is that they're expanding five miles of freeway, not that they want to just replace a bridge. I think if they just focused on a bridge, not only could it be a lot cheaper, but they'd have a lot less opposition, right? But I think I think that's where they're running into trouble is that they're trying to take off way too big of a piece of this just to expand their freeway because that's really what they love to do. And so they're inviting all this opposition and they're trying to couch the opposition as just being against a bridge, which isn't really what's happening. People are, don't like a big freeway project Right. So anyway, that's an interesting dynamic that's going to play out. And I bet I bet I'll be making some phone calls to your office later uh, in the next you know, coming months, really, because they're about to try to, to think of a new um, or to come to an agreement with a locally preferred design uh, for the interstate bridge. So that's going to uh, the whole project. So that's going to be interesting. But before before I let you go, I want to switch gears a little bit here and then then I'll ask you just a few questions at the end. I want to, I don't, I find when I talk to people like you, I end up not really talking a lot about bicycling specifically, uh, just because there are so many other issues. And uh, I know you're not necessarily, and maybe I'm wrong, but you're not necessarily like a bike centric, bike first person uh, in general. Um, but I did want to ask you about biking as a slice of the transportation issue. I mean, from your perspective, I, I, first of all, I personally think it, it is something that we need to talk about more and, and specifically because as you know, if you don't talk about something, it's easy to forget about it. And I do think it's a really effective way to achieve a lot of the goals that and, and, and the values that a lot of people have for transportation and just for livability in general. So I wonder, what do you think, you know, could make that make bicycling sort of hold more sway in these conversations and, and be, you know, a better political, have more political capital in our region right now? I think, again, we need to bi make biking more accessible to ordinary people. And that can mean everything from subsidizing bikes so that it's it's really affordable for everybody to have bikes looking into electric bikes as well um, as a as a mode of transportation and how can we invest I, i've heard about some exciting programs to get to subsidize electric bikes for low-income households just introducing people making it accessible giving people the gear i know for me i was one big obstacle for me was figuring out and it still is figuring out the, what the gear i need is to be safe and of course slowing down traffic so i feel safe biking next to a lane that's, you know, right next to the street. But uh, ultimately, I think people um, need to be given the subsidies, the, tool, the, the tools, the incentives to, to be able to try it out. So it's not seen as kind of a privileged mode of transportation, but really as an everyday. Because, you know, actually, the first time I started biking was in Vietnam. And that was just an everyday. At the time, in 1998, it was actually still a, a mode of transportation that people still used back then. And, and it was um yeah everybody just like biked and it was so beautiful i mean some of the most moving things i actually saw men bike arm in arm like next to each other in like a line of like four or five and they were like arm in arm like biking next to each other it was they were young college students but it was both really beautiful about just challenging all these kind of toxic masculinity ideas and and also just that they had a trans we had a transportation system where people could actually do that on the road um so I, I definitely have a vision that biking doesn't have to be this like thousand dollar bike with spandex, but can be just a regular part of getting getting to the grocery store, getting getting to school and back. So I have that vision still in my heart. I, I'm actually glad to go back. I'm glad you mentioned something about the e-bike subsidy because I just think that to me is just like I just want to yell about it 
from the rooftops. And that is just like such a no brainer thing, in my opinion, given how powerful these new e-bikes are and how, I mean, in terms of not powerful, the motors necessarily, but like in changing people's lives and like bringing the benefits of bicycling to tons and tons more people who didn't think they could before they had a little bit of boost from a battery. So I really hope that you see a bill sooner than later, maybe not this session, but next session from folks. I know there's a lot of sort of advocacy folks working on that. It's kind of in the ether, but nothing's dropped. So I would welcome any policy ideas, okay. policy concepts. Okay, great. Everybody, I hope you heard that. So you know who to email. Yeah, it's rep.confam at oregonlegislature.gov. Awesome. Okay. So, okay. So let's see. Uh, last couple things here. So I want to go back. So you have a you have a younger daughter and, I, and she still lives around 82nd in the J district, right? And I know you've you've brought her up in the past about like her experience getting through the neighborhood. So what like in, in the next five years, you know, how do you want her experience to be different than it is today in getting around the neighborhood without a car? As she grows up, she's seven years old right now. And in in five years, I want her to be able to feel safe walking to the grocery store, some of the markets, the little um we have little tiny uh, Chinese markets in our in our street in our neighborhood. I want her to be able to walk to school on her own and be able to cross 82nd Avenue happily with her friends, and be able to. Well, I want her to feel safe, and I want also all all parents and families to feel safe, letting their kids just be able to explore and experience that kind of autonomy. I think it's so important to to kids' development to be able to have some autonomy and explore their neighborhoods. But right now, we're depriving so many kids of that because we're petrified. Without sidewalks, I mean, it's just these cars are speeding by, and there's nothing to protect kids from from these two thousand pound metal you know, contraption. So, so I guess my vision is that she's able to really explore her own independence. Like I would love to her to have that, that experience with her friends uh, in a safe environment where she's able to breathe clean air. We also have some almost double the asthma rate right now because, because we have these, you know, huge orphan highways, tons of diesel emissions and and not enough green space to, to kind of soak in some of those emissions. And of course, with now the heat waves, uh, I hope that she's able to have a cooler, a cooler neighborhood too, where there's hopefully more trees, less pavement that's that's soaking on all the heat. So those are my visions and dreams for her. And um, yeah, I'm committed to, to working hard, as hard as I can with community to make sure we we see those changes happen. Great, thanks. And, and it, I'm so glad that you're gonna have the, potentially a role to play in actually achieving those things. And we'll be hopefully talking more about 82nd Avenue and the whole corridor, hopefully, uh, pretty soon here. So thank you so much, uh, Rep. Fam, for talking to me today. I really appreciate your time and good luck in the upcoming session. Thank you so much for having me on. I really enjoyed the conversation. That was Oregon State Representative Con Fam. Be sure to check our show notes for links and resources mentioned in this episode. The Bike Portland podcast is a production of Pedaltown Media Incorporated and is made possible by listeners just like you. If you're not a subscriber yet, please become one today at bikeportland.org support. You can listen to more episodes and find out how to subscribe at bikeportland.org podcast. Our theme music is by Kevin Hartnell. And I'm your host, Jonathan Maz. Until next time, thanks for listening, and I'll see you in the streets.